0: Welcome to Part 6 of the Written by Rich Hostick podcast presentation of Near Death, A Rainy Day Investigation. Before we get started in this week's installment, please take a moment, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Audible, so you don't miss an exciting chapter. You'll also get my weekly short stories. And please like and share. It really helps to allow me to continue providing the audio versions of my work for free. At this point in the story, we are quite familiar with Dr. Jennifer Day. She's an anthropology professor, parapsychologist, and magician. This combination of disciplines is actually based on the life of Lloyd Auerbach, one of my co-authors on the Rainy Day Investigation book series. He studied anthropology along with parapsychology at John F. Kennedy University. If you come across one of his many appearances on various radio and TV shows, YouTube channels, or podcasts, you'll likely hear him talk about how part of his formal education in the field was a course on magic. One of the essential skills of a parapsychologist is to be able to discern the authentic paranormal from people who perform hoaxes and frauds using techniques employed by magicians and mentalists. Lloyd found himself drawn to magic beyond the academic applications and began learning as much as he could and still performs as Professor Paranormal, the inspiration for Jennifer's alter ego, the mysterious professor. Make sure you check out the links to his biography and books on the RadiantDay.com website and catch his bi-weekly live streams on Facebook every other Sunday. This unabridged audio edition is presented as a prelude to the upcoming release of the next book in this series, Afterlife. So make sure to follow all of the authors on Amazon using the links in this episode's description to be notified when it's available. Until then, enjoy the following chapters of Near Death. Chapter 16. Emily sat at Jennifer's desk, her legs folded up on her lap and her face buried in a book, earbuds nestled in among her piercings. The office chair she was perched on moved slowly away from the desk. Emily looked down and plucked out her earbuds. Are you done yet, Bits? She asked. Bits climbed out from under the desk. He had an LED headlamp on that shone directly in Emily's eyes when he looked at her. All set, he replied. You guys are back online. I've got you hardwired and put in a new Wi-Fi router. Awesome, Emily replied, shading her eyes from the glare of Bits' lamp. Can you turn that thing off? Bits reached up and switched the lamp off. Tell Dr. Day I'll send her my bill. Emily reached down and picked up a waste paper basket. Give it to me now. I'll foul it with the others. Bit smiled. It was an ongoing inside joke that he would someday get paid by Jennifer. The truth was, he was more than eager to provide tech support and high-tech gadgets to the professor. He had his own ideas about the nature of the soul and had some wild theories about how he would retain his consciousness inside a robot body when he died. And since Jennifer's research conveniently intersected with his own crazy ideas... He was happy to help her out whenever and wherever. For bits, the reward was the work. Which is also why he didn't actually live anywhere. He found it hard to pay rent when he didn't believe in the concept of money. Instead, he used the university gym to shower and change, slept on any number of couches spread across campus, and traded his services with various restaurants and roamed the faculty lounges for leftover food. He had a laptop computer that never left his side. It was a Linux system, protected with his own tweaked VPN and anti-intrusion monitors. He never used off-the-shelf stuff. Even the operating system was heavily modified. His files were backed up on a secure server in Norway. Bits liked his privacy. The stuff he did for Jennifer was mostly hardware. The software coding he could do anywhere, but to build the gadgets Dr. Day needed for her investigations, he needed a workshop. The details of how he managed to get himself access to the school's electronics lab and the supplies he needed was something he never shared with Jennifer. Like the rest of his life, it was strictly off the books. Bits reached over and powered on the computer on Jennifer's desk. The monitor cycled through various screens that took it to the login. Password is, Emily started to say, but Bit's fingers danced over the keyboard and unlocked the system before she could finish. Remind me never to let you touch my phone, she said. Not me you have to worry about, it's the NSA. Emily clicked on the icon for the email app. The number next to the inbox reported that there were 537 unread messages. Dave, she shouted. Dave emerged from between some shelves. What? Email. You're the undergrad intern. I'm the graduate student teaching assistant. Sounds like an intern job to me. I have class. Emily offered an insincere smirk, gathered her book, and shoved it in her backpack. You do not. Study group. You hate people. Bye, Emily said and slipped past Dave and Bits toward the elevator. Dave looked over at Bits. Don't you have some magic program to sort emails? I never touch this stuff, Bits answered. Then he grabbed his own pack and followed Emily. Great, Dave muttered to himself. I swear, as soon as I finish my thesis, I'm done with this. He sat down in front of the computer and started clicking through the emails. Dave had a nagging fear that Dr. Day's sponsorship of his thesis was contingent on his being her office slave, equipment lugger, and errand boy. At the rate his graduate studies were progressing, it was going to take a while, and the stipend he got as Dr. Day's graduate assistant was a lifeline. The truth was, he didn't really mind screening the email. He had a system. Whenever Emily or Jennifer deigned to do anything to help, they ended up making things worse. It would take Dave twice as long to fix what they had messed up. He wondered sometimes if they didn't do it on purpose. He started sorting through the messages, dragging them into various folders, depending on whether they were in the categories of ghosts poltergeists, people claiming to have psychic abilities, possessions, or the inevitable UFO nut who claimed that angels were actually aliens. Sometimes he had to read quite a bit of the email to get to the point. He had pestered bits about the fact that the website form had a drop-down option to categorize the message, but that information wasn't present in the email at all. It took Dave the better part of an hour just to get through the first 100 messages, after which he took a break and did a little web surfing to see if there was any news about Dr. Day that the dean could use against them. He found a few fringe blogs who had picked up some previous stories, and a few memes had come out from the Mo Hogan interview, most of them featuring Mo quoting a line from Ghostbusters. I ain't afraid of no ghost. Who are you going to call? And you said crossing streams was bad, among the most popular. How he had worked that into a conversation with Jennifer, Dave didn't want to know. After a while, he returned to the incoming messages, and after a few dozen more obvious crackpots, one caught his eye. It was brief, sincere and absent any of the fantastical claims that most of them contained. A woman who lived in the Oakley Arms claimed she was being haunted by a man who appeared to be from an earlier era. She was simply inquiring if they could look into encouraging him to leave. Dave checked the time the email was sent. It was during the live podcast of Mohogan's show, which made sense. A lot of the incoming messages were in fact from that time period. He googled her name and came up with several entries. But the one that was most likely was a woman who worked on the staff of a local law firm, not too far from the address he had found for the Oakley Arms. Next, he did an online search for the Oakley Arms, and on the second page of results, past the real estate listings and reviews, next, he did an online search for the Oakley Arms, and on the second page of results, past the real estate listings and reviews, he found some mentions included in websites he was familiar with that chronicled stories of San Francisco hauntings. Apparently, a deceased janitor was the most famous noncorporeal resident. The building was over a hundred years old, which reminded Dave of his trip to the Palace Theater not too long ago. He knew now for a certainty that Dr. Day would absolutely insist on looking into the case based on the age of the building alone. History is mostly ghost stories, Jennifer was fond of saying. It was often quoted when she did interviews, and she frequently promised to write a book with that title, but had yet to get around to it. Dave put the email from Diane Collins at the Oakley Arms in the interesting folder and sent the last of the emails to their appropriate destinations most of them being spam. The badge indicating how many unread emails were in the inbox was now gone. He leaned back, laced his fingers behind his head, and put one foot, then the other, on the big wooden desk and leaned back for a well-deserved moment of peace. It had been three years since he began his research under Dr. Day. He'd had several false starts on his thesis and at present was still searching for a novel approach to his chosen subject. Jennifer's style was mostly hands-off, well, entirely hands-off, He would come to her with questions, which she would bounce back at him, and whatever answer he grabbed out of thin air was what she enthusiastically endorsed. So, he would sit in front of his computer for months at a time, writing, researching, rewriting, only to find that the premise of his thesis fell apart, and he was back at square one. Of course, Dr. Day assured him it was all part of the process, and would set him about one task or another, grading papers, scouring records, scanning photos, logging videos, After a while, he would give it another go, but Jennifer never seemed particularly concerned that he wasn't making progress on his degree. He knew, of course, that she didn't care if he finished his studies. The longer he was a grad student, the longer she wouldn't have to find someone else to do what he did for her. There was many a time that Dave felt he'd had enough. He was going to find another advisor, finish his thesis, get his doctorate, and go on to... And that was where the fantasy would end. Go on to what? He had no desire to teach, let alone the aptitude to give the kind of lectures that Jennifer was known for. The truth was, he liked being a student. The pay sucked, but he had access to cheap housing, and Bits hooked him up with free phone and internet. And he actually liked ramen. Being Jennifer's grad assistant was the perfect job for him. He got to avoid the responsibilities of real life, and to be honest, although he complained, he kind of liked working with her. A lot of it was boring and tedious, and she treated him like her own personal servant, but it was also exciting at times. And the things he'd seen. He was a skeptic at first, He'd been drawn to Dr. Day like every other undergrad who had taken her course. She made anthropology interesting, accessible, and for Dave, very appealing. It was through Jennifer that he had awoken his own love for the field. Being her graduate assistant and doctoral candidate was an opportunity he couldn't pass up. Little did he know at the time that instead of being a path to his career, it would actually become his career. Comfortable? Dave jerked at the sound of the voice. He tried to remove his feet from the desk but ended up leaning back past the tipping point of the chair. His arms flailed but that only made it worse and he ended up crashing backwards in a heap on the floor. Jennifer walked over to the desk and looked at Dave lying on the ground. His expression was more embarrassed than pained. Sorry, didn't mean to scare you, she said. You didn't scare me, Dave replied. He laid there for a moment then crossed his arms over his chest as if he was perfectly comfortable where he was. Jennifer stared at him for a moment then asked, Can I have my desk back? Oh, sure, Dave said. He swung his legs up over his head, bumping his feet into the bookshelves behind him. Then he dropped them to one side and tried to roll over, but the armrest on the chair snagged his belt and made it impossible for him to stand. Need a hand? Jennifer asked. Dave smiled and shook off her offer. He struggled a bit more, then finally managed to get to his feet. He righted the chair and spun it around, offering it to Jennifer to sit in. Thank you, she said, letting out a small laugh. She liked Dave a lot, She knew she took advantage of his easygoing nature and personal insecurity, but she also knew they both had a good thing going and couldn't resist the urge to keep it going for as long as possible by not pushing him to finish his thesis. That time would come, but no need to rush it. Did you set up that meeting with the dean? she asked. I did, tomorrow afternoon. Don't miss it, Dave warned. I won't. And don't make him any angrier at you. Don't worry, I'm going to straighten everything out. We'll be out of the dungeon before you can say... Just be nice, Dave said. I'm always nice, aren't I? Jennifer sat down at the desk and spied the tidy inbox on her computer screen. Anything interesting? she asked. Uh, that would be the emails in the interesting folder, he said, annoyed at having to point out what seemed perfectly obvious. Jennifer opened the folder and scanned the subject lines. The one about the Oakley Arms is the most promising. Old building, lots of history, Dave suggested. She found the email he was talking about and opened it up. She read it, knowing that Dave was doing the same over her shoulder. He was right. The woman who wrote it seemed perfectly rational, and the phenomena she described was nothing they hadn't seen before. Do we have anything in the files on the Oakley Arms? It sounds familiar. Yep, Dave confirmed. I did a quick search when I first saw the email. I think we might have received other tips about spirits there. Nothing ever panned out, though. Anything about a male ghost haunting young women? Not specifically. The story is mostly concerned an entity that, well, sometimes tidies the place up. Jennifer raised an eyebrow. A neat-freak poltergeist? Dave shrugged. Dig a little deeper. See if you can find anything in the newspapers. How far should I go back? How old is the building? Dave sighed. Chapter 17. Nate finished cleaning up after his takeout mail from Bassiano's a favorite restaurant of his. He didn't mind dining alone, but after all the day's activities and a lot more walking than he'd expected to do, he settled for a Grubhub delivery of an herb-crusted snapper with some mushroom risotto. The food had lost some of its luster in its transition from Bassiano's rustic dining room to his own home, but was still better than anything he'd be able to rustle up one-handed in his own kitchen, or worse, microwave. Although he had the perfect bottle of wine to pair with the meal in his cellar, His medications forced him to settle for Perrier instead. He found himself thinking about Jennifer Day. Ever since her appearance in his hospital room almost a week ago, he couldn't quite get her out of his mind. She was obviously intelligent and charismatic the portion of her lecture he had seen was evidence of that and there was no doubt that he found her attractive, but at the same time, she was completely and irrepressibly aggravating. Her persistent prying into what he experienced when he was shot was particularly unnerving. It made him second-guess himself. He was certain it was all a crazy dream, cobbled together from the last thoughts his oxygen-starved mind had experienced and a life of police work. In his dream, he had clearly seen the men who had robbed the store and shot him. But he had no evidence to support the idea that they were hiding out in the Tenderloin District, let alone what type of car they were driving. What Dr. Day had suggested that he had had a near-death experience, was just a fairy tale. Such things were the province of superstitious or religious people, and he was neither one. He had actually googled alternative explanations while he was waiting for his delivery from Bassiano's, and they seemed to him much more rational theories. The fact that when the heart stops beating, the brain is starved of oxygen and starts shutting down, connections misfiring, then the intermittent return of blood flow during his surgery could easily have compromised his memory. Or engendered the strange dream. Yet at the same time, parts of it were so vivid, not like the foggy recollections he normally woke with of disjointed scenes and convoluted scenarios. This felt like he was watching a movie, albeit from an impossible perspective. First in the hospital's operating room, then at the rundown house. Everything was coherent. That's the part that bothered him the most. But there was an explanation for that as well, wasn't there? He was heavily medicated with analgesics and anesthetics, both of which had the capacity to create hallucinations, and in some cases, vivid dreams. It was by far the more likely explanation, and it reassured him that his instincts to dismiss the elements of his dream as pure fantasy were correct. He returned to his computer with a glass of sparkling water and typed Jennifer Day into Google. There were thousands of results and near the top was a YouTube video of a podcast where she was the guest. She was just as captivating in this setting as she was behind the podium on the stage of her lecture hall. He smiled when she performed her magic trick for Mo. The impromptu demonstration of her telekinetic powers was slick, but he made a career of noticing things most people didn't, and he could tell the difference between a casual scratch behind the ear and a magician's load. It was clear why she garnered so much attention and why there were so many links to her on Google. He listened to her stories of hauntings and paranormal phenomena and psychic experiences. None of it he found convincing. But he could see how someone with a predisposition to believing in such things would find her anecdotes to be powerful confirmations of their own biases. Nate's distrust of the supernatural stemmed in part from his experience on the Force. He had spent some time dealing with the shady underbelly of the psychic scene in San Francisco because of his mother's pursuit of communication with her deceased husband. Most of the psychics in town had connections to organized crime. Some, Nate found, sincerely believed in their abilities. From his perspective, however, they were merely natural cold readers, people who were good at sensing body language and microexpressions and coupled it with an acute inborn intuition, not unlike what you would find in a good police detective. But regardless of their intentions, if they didn't have the means to get out from under the thumbs of the shady elements that were insinuated throughout the city, they were sometimes strong-armed into doing things that went against their better natures. Of course, for each of those good-intentioned practitioners, there were ten or more who were simply out to scam people. Unscrupulous magicians, who found they could make more money reading palms and tarot cards than pulling rabbits out of hats at kids' birthday parties, populated the mini-malls and second floors of storefronts. It seemed like his mother had visited every one of them and probably put many of their children through college. It enraged him when he thought about it. He had made sure the bulk of his father's death benefits were protected. A lawyer friend had helped convince his mother to put the funds through a trust so no major withdrawals could be made without Nate's approval. However, she still managed to find enough cash in her weekly budget to spend on psychics, and he suspected she was selling off her jewelry and other possessions to fund her quest for spiritual communion with her departed husband. Nate had tried to cut her off. He would follow her to appointments, try to expose the scams the phony psychics were pulling on her, but it only created resentment. She saw Nate not as a loving son trying to protect her, but an obstacle to her relationship with her husband. She and Nate had a tremendous argument, and both said things they would later come to regret. They didn't speak for almost a year. Then one evening, Nate received a call from one of his mother's friends. She was worried that she hadn't heard from Eleanor Rainey for more than two days. Nate went to his mother's house and found her on the edge of life, badly dehydrated. She had been beset by a bad stomach flu, which almost instantly weakened her to the point where she didn't have the strength to even make a phone call. A couple days in the hospital set things right and provided the impetus for a reconciliation between the two. Nate made the concession that his mother firmly believed she was communicating with Nate's father through the various psychics. He agreed not to interfere, but in exchange, she agreed to let him have a hand in her finances. The detente had endured since then, and Nate swallowed his incredulity whenever she told him of the latest news from his father. He realized it gave her a comfort that she craved. They had spent over thirty years together before he passed, they were childhood sweethearts, and he was the only man she had ever loved. So, Nate let his mother have her little fantasies, and smiled when she told him how proud his father was of him, and groaned when she related how worried they both were that he would never find a nice girl. The doorbell rang. Nate closed his computer, silencing the video podcast in its final moments. He stood slowly, still a bit weak from the day's exertions. He steadied himself, then walked to the front door and looked through the peephole. It was Max, holding up a six-pack of beer. Nate opened the door and a rush of cool evening air swept in along with Max. "'Hey, boss. Am I interrupting anything?' Max looked around the room, expectantly. Not seeing what or whom he was looking for, he shrugged, disappointed. "'Hi, Max. Come on in,' Nate offered sarcastically. "'Well, I knew you probably didn't seal the deal, but a guy can dream, can he?' "'What are you talking about?' "'The sexy professor. You did go see her this afternoon, didn't you?' Nate didn't answer. He hadn't even thought about checking in on Jennifer until well after he left the police station. "'Don't blame you, boss.' She's smart, sexy, pushy, just the way you like them. No, wait, that's the way I like them. Did you get her number yet? He plopped the beer on the coffee table, then himself on the sofa and reached for a bottle and twisted it open. So, Spill, what happened? He asked. then took a long draft from the beer. Nothing, Nate answered. He crossed to the recliner next to the sofa and lowered himself down gently, using his good arm to steady his descent. Not buying it, Max declared. She's interested in you. You should make a move. Well, not that it's any of your business, but I only saw her to get her to stop harassing me. You really are Rusty on the whole dating thing, aren't you? She's an opportunistic showboating publicity hound and only wants to get me to be a story in her next book. Oh, so you have been checking her out. Nate stammered. I I looked into her background, nothing more. Max used his beard to point at the laptop. So, if I open that laptop, I'm not going to see a picture of her on your screen? Not even close. Max lifted himself out of the couch and started toward the dining room table where Nate's laptop lay closed. Nate put his arm out to stop him. Okay. When I was Googling her, there was a YouTube video of some podcast she appeared on. Max collapsed back onto the sofa, smiling. I knew it! Is she naked? Of course not. Max kept on smiling as he drank from his beer. She is hot, though. You have to admit that. She's attractive, but she's also intelligent and accomplished. Oh, what happened to opportunistic and nefarious? I never said nefarious. Look, did you really expect to come here and find me with her? I just got out of the hospital. I can barely walk around on my own for more than 15 minutes. Max shook his head. Excuses. Reasons, Nate countered. So, any updates? He asked, hoping to change the subject. Not yet, Max answered, shifting into a more serious mood. But we will get them. I put out some feelers to some out-of-state jurisdictions. If we can establish that they've been working across state lines, we can get the FBI involved. Oh yeah? The captain is on board with that? Nate asked suspiciously. I just sent some emails. And if it gets back to her? Don't worry. I'll put all the blame on you. I'll be okay. Max finished off his beer, then cracked a smile. Nate couldn't help but laugh. The slight motion sent a needle of pain through his shoulder. Don't make me laugh. Nate said, trying to get himself comfortable again. Hey, enough shop talk. If you don't have any deets on your new girlfriend, Nate moaned and rolled his eyes, then can we at least watch the Giants game? Max reached for the television remote and turned it on. He tapped in the number for the local sports channel and opened another beer. He offered it to Nate. Nate declined with a sigh. Can't. Still on the pain meds. Oh, right. You probably have all the good pills that keep you from operating heavy machinery. More for me. He put his feet up, and they spent the rest of the night criticizing the performance of the team and the decisions of the manager. It was exactly what Nate needed. Chapter 18 Dave and Emily sat in front of the two ancient microfiche readers, paging through old editions of the San Francisco Chronicle. Dave had found a story about the completion of the Oakley Arms just after the turn of the last century in the digitized version of the archives. He was lucky, Most of the scans of the old newspapers were barely legible, and the technology that read the blurry text to create the index was invented years before any machine learning algorithms added their smarts to the task. He did have some key dates that he was able to identify and articles that mentioned the Oakley Arms. Some headlines were legible, and he was able to create a hit list of issues on the old paper he would want to start with. But without looking at the actual pages and scanning for other contemporary stories, they wouldn't really be able to get a complete picture of the history of the building. Emily actually enjoyed this kind of work. She liked scrolling through the past on the large, grainy projector and had an uncanny ability to pick out relevant stories from the full-sheet newspaper pages on the screen. The political incorrectness of many of the stories and the advertisements was amusing to her. Dave, on the other hand, was not a fan of such an analog throwback. He was of the growing generation that felt, if it wasn't on Google, it wasn't worth knowing. How far back do we have to go? Emily asked. Dave tapped a date on a notepad he kept next to the microfiche reader. January fifteenth, 1912. It was built after the great earthquake of 1906. I thought that was in the 80s. You know, things did happen before you were born. That is before I was born. Okay, before your parents were born. Nothing interesting, she commented, scanning sheet after sheet of poorly photographed newsprint. Why did you ever become an anthropology major if you're not interested in history? Dave asked. I prefer my history ancient, Emily replied. Bingo, she said, matter-of-factly. She pressed the copy button on the microfiche reader, and the output of the display was optically redirected to an equally outdated photocopying mechanism that spit out a smudged copy of the page she was looking at. Dave leaned over and looked at her screen. The headline read, X-Man Meets His End from Atop Oakley Arms. That sounds promising, Dave commented. Can I go now? Emily asked. We've got two more decades to search. See if there's any other stories about this axe man in the weeks before. Emily raised an eyebrow. You want me to go back? Yeah, it sounds like there was a killer slashing people. Violent deaths means restless spirits. If we don't get it now, Dr. Day is just going to make us go back and do it later. Emily sighed and did a quick rewind of the spool of microfiche. Ooh, Dave exclaimed while paused on a page of his own machine. Find something? Emily asked. Sale on suits? Only $20. For two. You know, people made like $20 a year back then. You really need to get a better perspective on contemporary history. Emily hit the copy button a couple times in a row. Hey, easy with that. It's a buck a copy. You want the goods on the local axe murderer or not? Dave glanced over at her screen. Carry on. Chapter 19 Jennifer sat in one of the uncomfortable leather chairs in the dean's outer office, flipping through her Twitter feed. After an appearance on something like The Mo Hogan Show, she was usually inundated with a mix of compliments, lewd offers, religious warnings about trespassing on God's domain, random memes, and the occasional inquiry for her to look into some ghost or paranormal situation. She was specifically focused on the latter category, though she did take a moment to reply to some compliments on her appearance on the podcast. Specifically, she was looking for something she could use to open Detective Rainey's mind. She knew that his experience with his mother and storefront psychics made him a more resistant skeptic, but the right experience might be able to shift his thinking. He'll see you now, June, the dean's assistant, said abruptly. Jennifer looked up at the middle-aged woman, who was always nice to Jennifer, despite being fiercely loyal to the dean. Thank you, June, Jennifer said. She tucked her phone away and strode purposefully toward the door to the inner office. Inside, the dean was sitting at his desk with what looked like a handwritten letter unfolded in front of him. Jennifer strode up to the desk and stood in front of it with her arms crossed. "'Have a seat,' the dean offered. "'I'd rather stand,' she replied. "'That way I can look down on you like the cowering rat you are. What are you trying to achieve by putting me and my staff in that crypt?' "'Seems to me you might enjoy that kind of environment,' the dean said. Jennifer ignored his insult. "'I'm a tenured member of this department,' I conduct one of the most popular classes on this campus. The drunken bacchanalia the frat house's host are popular as well. That doesn't mean either of them contribute to the academic mission of this institution. Look, I appreciate that your little magic shows bring students into the program, but there comes a time when you have to put the fun and games aside and stick to science instead of voodoo. You realize that Anderson actually teaches a course on voodoo, Jennifer countered. The dean shook her comment off. I'm talking about your extracurricular activities, the ghost hunting and mind reading and teleportation. I think you mean astral projection. I mean, this department cannot reward such blatant disregard for the standards and the academic mission we need to uphold. You're not studying an acknowledged field of legitimate academic value. How can you call yourself an educator and be so closed minded? Just because my research doesn't involve sorting through dusty bones and broken pottery doesn't mean it's not a legitimate avenue of inquiry. We have a theology department at this school. They believe in omnipotent deities and afterlife miracles. Does that mean they should be drummed out of the university? That's different, the dean insisted. They are not representing the sciences. But isn't that why we draw a line between the hard and soft sciences? When we study the past, there's no experimental process we can rely upon to support our hypotheses. We look for evidence and try to interpret it, And to pretend that there is no evidence for the supernatural, with all the thousands of stories and accounts ranging across all civilizations, is counter to our responsibility to question everything. The dean sighed and sat back in his chair. There is a line, Dr. Day. We can't just take every crackpot idea and turn it into a college course. Your colleagues are trying to provide a serious educational environment for our students. The dean rose from his chair and leaned forward, his fingers tented on the desk blotter. And... Said emphatically, I know that you and your staff use the university's resources for your investigations. My investigations are a continuation of the work in my thesis, the document upon which I was awarded a PhD. The university hired me and granted me tenure, knowing full well the direction my research would go. I was not head of the department at that time, otherwise, you never would have had the opportunity to contaminate the corpus of work generated by this department. Jennifer shook her head and took a step back. Have you forgotten that we started teaching her together? You used to be interesting. A little lacking in confidence, but I liked you. You had promise. You just needed to believe in yourself more. The dean stood up straight and lifted his chin. I don't need your backhanded compliments. I accepted a position in the administration because I knew I could do more as a leader. Jennifer laughed. The only reason you're dean is that you couldn't get published. You were always jealous of me when we were colleagues, and as you climbed your way to this office, you've been trying to keep me down every step of the way. I've only acted in the best interest of the department, the dean insisted. Well, is it in the best interest of the department to be a constant obstacle to the member of your staff who consistently gets the highest student ratings? Teaching is not a popularity contest. Well, what does it matter how the university gets attention as long as it attracts students and donors? The dean is surprisingly silenced by Jennifer's question. Look, he began in a more conciliatory tone, of voice. I didn't ask you here to get into an argument. He sat back down in his chair, then waited for Jennifer to seat herself in one of the chairs in front of his desk. The fact is, I did have some space open up that you and your staff may use, he said. I'm sensing a but, Jennifer replied suspiciously. There is no but. I just need you to fulfill all the responsibilities of your position. Jennifer grinned. And which of those responsibilities, exactly, am I being expected to fulfill? The dean hesitated. There is a donor. Jennifer sensed he was reluctant to continue. Go on, she urged. What is it about this donor that involves me? Well, it seems he caught wind of you and is considering making a sizable donation contingent on meeting you. Ah, and you can't have your precious money man thinking you keep me in the basement. So who is this philanthropist who is so interested in my work that you need to swallow your pride and maybe a little crow along with it? The dean picked up the letter on his desk and handed it over to Jennifer. She took it and started reading. It was a short note expressing his desire to set up an endowment for the department where Jennifer Day was a professor. It ended with a request that he have a chance to meet with Dr. Day and discuss topics he was sure she would be of help on. It was signed, Daniel Worthington. Jennifer raised an eyebrow at the name and grandiose signature. Daniel Worthington, the restaurateur? She asked. The dean nodded. The one who married into the Kirkwood family? He nodded again. The Kirkmart-Kirkwood family? Yes, that's the one, he said with an air of frustration. lot of money there, Jennifer said, realizing that the balance of power in the room had suddenly shifted in her favor. The dean just nodded, avoiding her eyes. So tell me about this new office suite you have for me office suite the dean asked jennifer sat back and smiled quite pleased with how the day was starting off thank you for listening to part six of near death a rainy day investigation on the written by rich hostick podcast near death was written by rich hostick arnold rudnick and lloyd auerbach i hope you're enjoying the audio version of this novel please leave a review on amazon or audible And stay tuned for more chapters in this thrilling paranormal mystery in the coming weeks. Also, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast app or download these episodes on Audible. Give me a like or five stars and a quick review. And most importantly, share Near Death and my weekly audio short stories with your friends or anyone who enjoys audiobooks. You can find out more about the Rainy Day Investigation book series at RainyAndDay.com. That's R-A-N-E-Y and D-A-Y-E dot com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Rich Houseck. Give us a like on Facebook, at Rainy and Day, And don't forget to check out my books on Amazon and follow me there to make sure you get notified of when Book 2, Afterlife, is released. Thanks again, and all the very best.